Welcome to PB Link Stories. We explore the stories and uncover the business secrets of some of Britain's most successful entrepreneurs. Today we have a special bread chair edition of PB Link Stories. I'll introduce our guest and he can tell his story without any interruptions or questions from me. His name is Martin Stepek, founding director of the Scottish Family Business Association, author, mindfulness expert, poet, recipient of the Zwati Kishish Zaswugi, the gold, gold Cross of Merit, and much more. Martin is here as the son of the late business magnate and war hero, Jan Stepek. Jan Stepek survived starvation in a Soviet gulag, barefoot travel from the Arctic Circle to Persia, typhus, malaria and dysentery, before volunteering for service in the Polish Navy. He then built a multi-million pound family business in Scotland before it all came crashing down. What did he do right? What did he do wrong? Martin now runs the Scottish Family Business Association aimed at advising family businesses of the dangers of unprepared success. This podcast is part one of Martin's story. There'll be a part two podcast at a later date. And you can vote in the comments section whether Martin gets tipped or can walk. Martin, it's great to have you here. Over to you. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be here. And I think especially to tell my dad's story and, and what flowed from that. So, as you can imagine, Stepik is, is the surname. And my father grew up in a part of Poland, which is now, as with so many people of that generation, was, was now part of Ukraine. Um, but before that, his father was raised in a little village called Hatchuf, which may well be known to some people because there's a World Heritage Site um, on it, um, one of the oldest wooden churches in Europe. Absolutely stunning place to, to visit. And it's in southeastern Poland, present day. So the Stepik seems to have come from there for generations and generations, as far back as 1700s, as far back as I can get. But my grandfather fought in the First World War, conscripted to the Austrian army, got captured, managed to get out, which is a whole half-hour story in itself, so I'll skip that one, managed to get out and back to Poland. And then he formed, towards the end of the war, a band of 100 volunteers who um, attacked and defeated an Austrian garrison and then joined who personally became General Maciek, at that time Captain Maciek, um, to protect the newly found borders of independent Poland um, against the Ukrainian troops and the Russian troops, 1918, 19, 19, 19, 20. So he was a, a war hero in his own right, um, my grandfather. And as a result, he was given land in um, near between Lviv and Wutsk um, in present-day Ukraine. And the people who were given these lands called Osada were basically veterans of the First World War. And they were there almost like a line to defend against the Bolshevik Revolution and, and, and other possible um, insurgents. So my dad grew up on a farm um, in that area. And I wouldn't say everything was happy and rosy, but because farming is difficult, especially 1920s and 30s, 
in a country which is just trying to pull itself together socially, politically and economically after 111 years of being occupied. So Poland managed to pull itself together quite nicely and my dad was at agricultural college when the Second World War broke out. He came home um, to stay with family and when the Russians invaded, you know, 17 days after the, the Germans um, in September 1939, my grandfather was tipped off that he was going to be arrested and executed. And he was tipped off, Beauty, the great beauty and the irony of this is he was tipped off by a Ukrainian friend and a Jewish communist. So the two peoples who were kind of combating with the Poles before the war, they were close enough to him to say, you know, we value you as a human being. And so he fled into hiding with the consent of his family. And four months later, the rest of the family were um, woken up at two in the morning. Classic story nowadays, better known than it used to be, um, with the, one of the first of the mass deportations of Polish citizens to the USSR. So three weeks in a cattle train, my dad, his two younger sisters, dad was 17, two younger sisters, 14 and 12, and his mother, who was 36. They were sent to a labour camp um, near Kotwas, which is in the Archangel region, so very close to the Arctic Circle. It was minus 32 degrees, apparently, when they were there. Eight, winter last eight months there, we've got a letter from my grandmother to her husband in hiding, saying, um, oh, my dearest, all of us are still alive. That's the first sentence. You know, and you just think, how severe it is to start a letter like that. And then the next sentence is, but winter is coming in the last eight months. Will we still be alive after that? You just think, I mean, it's amazing to think that I'm alive because of these people who suffered that. And um, if Hitler didn't betray Stalin and attack the Soviet Union, so when that happened, um, Sikorsky, the Polish leader, negotiated with Churchill and the two of them negotiated with Stalin to release any Poles who were still alive in these mass deportations and give them what was called an amnesty, even though they'd committed no crimes. Um, and they were meant to try and find their way to southern Russia, what's now um, Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan, and form Russian troops to help protect Russia against this German invasion. But General Anders, who had been tortured um, at the time by the Russians, was also released and he was put in charge of this whole mass gathering of, of refugees, essentially, or um, freed prisoners. And um, he managed to persuade, I don't know quite how he managed to do it, he managed to persuade the Soviets, it would be better if they all got to Persia, which was under Soviet and British control at the time, and that maybe they could attack in a different direction. And Anders' main thought was, let's get these people out of Soviet Union. And so he managed to do that. And Dad got separated from his rest of his family because he walked to try and find the Polish army to recruit in, in Uzbekistan. Uh, 50 kilometres, he said it was, um, across the Kazakh scrub, barefoot, because his shoes had worn out. Um, and he weighed about five stone, he was 20. So he 
then caught typhus while with the Polish troops still in Soviet Union, then caught dysentery. And when he was recovering from dysentery, the remaining Polish troops with him in it got across the Caspian Sea to Persia, now modern-day Iran, and he got dysentery again there. And then he was taken, he was so ill, he was taken to um, Tehran, and there he caught malaria. So from February 1942 to December 42, he had these four bouts of illness, almost all of which could have been fatal to a malnourished young guy. Meanwhile, my two aunts, dad's two younger sisters, and my grandmother managed to get across as well in August 1942. So they were kind of stuck there for about seven or eight months um, after being freed. Got across the sea, um, but my grandmother was too far gone um, by the time they all were taken in hospitals to um, Tehran. Then my grandmother died, and she died of starvation. It's in the death certificate. It's hunger and exhaustion. It's cause of death. And she's buried in Tehran. Um, she was 39. And my Aunt Danka was weighed on the shores of the Caspian Sea when she arrived, was de-loused, haircut. She had just turned 15 and she weighed 3 stone 12, so 25 kilograms. Something, you know, you can't even imagine what that must have been like for a human being. So the three children survived um, and met each other in Tehran but didn't know, or the two girls together didn't know if my dad had survived once they were taken away because the, the young Polish um, people who mostly lost their parents um, were sent right across the British Empire. So Africa, even as far as Mexico, India, and my Aunt Danka was, being, was told that she was going to go to India and she cried and she says, can't I stay with my sister? So she's 14 at this time, 15 at this time, her sister's 17. And that's the cusp between adulthood and being a, a minor. Um, and her sister was joining the army, uh, the Women's Corps, and she was going to be going to Palestine. So want to go to Palestine, want to go to India. And Danka begged the officer in charge, say, I want to stay with my sister. And the officer just changed her date of birth by a year, made her 16 and let her go, you know, the humanity of that. Just beautiful. Um, so they went to Palestine. You know, it's not like flying nowadays, you know, to Iran, to, to, you know, to Palestine. It's, this is in army trucks over the desert, you know, almost like a Lawrence of Arabia thing. Um, and so my dad didn't know if they survived what happened to them because he was still in the hospital in Tehran. Then he recovered, rejoined the Polish army, and he was in Basra in Iraq training when he fell ill for the fourth time. And he thought, I'm going to die if I don't get out of the Middle East. So he um, saw that the Polish Navy were recruiting and he thought, well, the sea is healthier than being stuck here in the desert in 40 degrees centigrade. Um, so he went to apply to join the Polish Navy, managed to do so with a bit of persuasion. And next thing he knew, he was in a ship for the first time in his life, a proper ship, as opposed to the rattle can or the sort of rusty can that took him across the Caspian. Um, so a proper ship going down all of Africa around the Cape. And next thing he knew, he was landing in Liverpool. And 
he said, oh my God, it's the British Empire, all these dirty black sort of houses. Uh, Poland was so much nicer and more pleasant to live in than his first sight of Liverpool. That said, it was February and it was probably a murky day. Then this is where your connection comes in. He was on a train straight up to Glasgow um, Central, got Presumably Queen Street maybe didn't exist then, I don't know. Um, but anyway, whatever way he got up, next stop was to Fife and he was training in Kirkcaldy for over a week. And then he was back down to, you had mentioned, you know, your own background, south of England. He was near Plymouth um, and that's where the Polish Navy was based. Then he served in the war. Um, for the last couple of years of the war, he was involved in the liberation of the Dodecanese Islands in Greece, liberation of Sicily, liberation of Italy with the whole Monte Cassino thing that's famous for Poland, um, Polish troops helping um, win that. Dad was shelling, well not personally, but he was a radar operator shelling this stuff, um, the, the Germans and the Italians. And then back home and um, he was then involved in D-Day landings. So played his part in the war. But then, of course, the war ends. And what do the Polish people do who are involved in the, the war? Because the, the war was to liberate Poland, of course. That was the original intention. And what had happened was there was a transfer of occupation from the Germans and Russians to, well, not the Russians, the Soviets, to the Soviets under Stalin. Moreover, Stalin was a person who signed the order to take his family away and where he was born in Poland was no longer now part of Poland. So all these massive layers of psychological and political reasons for not going back. And of course, the danger of actually being just arrested because you were part of the free troops, if you like. So a lot of Poles didn't go back. And Dad was happy to stay in Britain, um, given that he had lost everything in Poland. Found out that his father had died in the resistance um, of cancer in 1943 as well. So he'd lost his parents, his home, his homeland, not nothing to go back to. And he decided that he would give another attempt at life, if you like, in Britain. Initially, he applied to study physics. But this was now the start of the Cold War. And um, in the Cold War, if you've been in the Soviet Union, you were written off for anything. So dad was uh, refused permission to study physics because it's the birth of the atomic bomb, etc. Um, so he then found that what is now Strathclyde University um, was offering um, grants and position to study radio and television engineering. So he came up to Glasgow for the second time. And this time it was Freshers' Week at Glasgow University. So everybody was out, made up. This is just after the war, 1946. And they're all made up in fancy costumes at Glasgow uh, Central Station, sort of waving their sort of tin cans and their buckets for money from people. And Dad thought he had landed in a, a lunatic asylum because um, he had no idea about this tradition. So he just lands there thinking, what on earth is going on? So he managed to get digs, which had been arranged for him, um, to stay in and started studying. Um, in what was then called the Radio and Television College, part of Royal College of Technology, which became Strathclyde. So he 
was studying, got a grant, so he was able to make a living, and he was starting to repair radios on the side. And then, by good fortune, he met my mum at dance in Glasgow, which is where everybody seemed to meet uh, in the war or post-war. And um, my mum's background was not quite as severe as dad's, but quite strong in its own right. She was one of 11 surviving children of a miner's widow. So my um, grandfather was a miner who died when my mum was only eight. And my granny brought up the 11 children on her own, a miner's pension. Um, and three of them graduated from Glasgow University. And I just think that must be one of the most phenomenal results of parenthood ever, you know, in, in Scottish history to, to manage that with such poverty and such working class background at the time. Hardly anybody went to university. So anyway, so mum came from a remarkable mining family and she and dad met and within a couple of years they married. Dad decided he was going to go out and, into business for himself. So he'd been doing repairs, radio repairs and making radios um, for a company for a couple of years. And then he thought, I can do this myself. And so he started doing it um, in 1950-51. And my mum had learned bookkeeping. So and she had to the job as a bookkeeper. So she quit. So she was doing basically the finance and the back management stuff. Dad was just doing the repairs. Then Dad thought that he could expand. Um, so he opened his first shop. Um, he, he went to Phillips. Um, the big Dutch electric, electronics company, they at the time, and still do, have a factory in Hamilton. So this was in Cambus Lang near Glasgow that mum and dad lived. Um, and dad persuaded the guy at Phillips to give him a year's grace, basically, of, to repay the televisions that he would rent out to people. This was just after the Queen was crowned, so people were starting to get interested in the idea of having a television in your home. Um, so he opened the first shop in 1955 in Campus Lang. Now, by this stage, my dad and mum had three children, um, so under the age of five, and they were still living in a tenement room in single end, one room, one, one kitchen. And dad was repairing the radios in, his, in the house. So you can imagine this tiny wee place that's got two rooms and a wee hallway, and Dad's got the hallway with a bench full of radio parts, repairing it. People coming in to pick up the radio, you know, and Dad inviting them in. Of course, Mum's making coffee, but she's got three kids under the age of five. Amazing degree of effort and resilience, I think, to, to cope with that. And of course, he's not been that many years in Britain, so he's still learning English. And so, me go, your house, radio, yeah, that kind of talk. But then they'd acquired so much cash by 1955 that they were able to move into a, a much bigger house. And so I was born 1959, so just four years after they were living, five to a single room um, or a single bedroom. Um, I was born in a house that had like nine, ten rooms, um, an old sandstone house. And then the following year, after I was born, they moved to an even bigger house, three-storied, sort of kind of Georgian house in Hamilton. And it was an amazing turnaround. But this time, when I was born, Dad had about five or six shops. And his mentality was really interesting. I think this, having lost so much, 
he was determined to have a kind of defensive approach, protective approach to business. So when he opened in Canvas Lang, he immediately got anxious that some of the much bigger sort of TV and radio washing machine companies would come in and he wouldn't be able to compete with them because they had the resources. So he opened around Canvas Lang and then he opened around them, almost like the way an ancient British fort you know, did, you know, you build the castle, then you make the moat, and then you build a big mound, and then you do another moat, and then you build another bigger mound, so that it's harder and harder for people to get to your core. So by the time I was um, about 10, we had 12 shops. Um, so this is just late 60s, early 70s. And Dad, by that time, had started to get back involved. He's always had a lot of Polish friends from the war, um, and doing some things at the Polish club, the Sikorsky club in Glasgow. Um, but now that he was a rising star, if you like, and actually by most people's standards in the 1960s, very wealthy. I mean, he had two Rolls Royces at the same time, which was incredibly embarrassing for us going to the local school, you know, and everybody else is walking there and I'm going in a bloody Rolls Royce. Said, ah! <laughs> anyway, so it was that kind of wealth. And Dad started then saying, how could he help the Polish community and how could he help Poland, which is still under communist rule? And a lot of people say don't have anything to do with communist Poland because they are the traitors, they are the, the enemy. But my dad was a savvy kind of business person, understood economics and said, well, yeah, you might hate their guts, but if we can actually sell the, more of their products, then they get wealth and the wealth goes to the people and people get better off. And he had aunts and that, his, his father's two sisters survived the war and so they were still in correspondence. So dad knew how hard it was for people in Poland. So anyway, he, he helped to, to well, he donated to the fund to recreate and um, rebuild Warsaw Castle. And um, he later on, when Poland had the... Um, Sorry, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. He got involved in trade with Poland. Um, so he knew that Poland created actually pretty reliable televisions um, called Unitram. And um, in the early 1970s, Dad started importing them, which was totally unheard of, you know, importing electrical goods from a, a communist country behind the Iron Curtain. And Dad was renting these out to Basically, everyone in Lanarkshire, I think we probably over 50% of the market share um, in Lanarkshire and East End of Glasgow. And these people were getting these Polish televisions and keeping them for 10, 15 years. So it was a, a real win-win. The Polish economy benefited, Dad benefited because lower prices from Poland than if you were trying to get them, say, from Panasonic, you know, in, in Japan. Um and it was a very successful business. And Dad increased his social activism, if you like, for Poland. When the he was actually invited by the Polish government, and I think this shows where Poland was going in the right direction in the 1970s, to help them create and understand how a model farm, so a, a, what would now be called an SME, you know, a small, medium-sized enterprise farm, on private enterprise terms, you know, how would you do that in a communist country? 
And so Dad was involved in discussions about that. But then, at the same time, just bad timing, um, the Solidarity Movement started growing. Um, and the martial law was then put in 1980-81. And everything to do with Poland speaking to the West was just uh, shuttered down. So that was never able to happen. But Dad still had his contacts with the Polish Communist government. And um, he said to them, he said, you know, totally disagree with what you're doing. You know, you're going in the wrong direction. But we can help supply medical aid and food to Poland um, because everything is, everybody's on strike, there's problems. Um, and he, along with other Poles um, in Britain, created this um, medical aid for Poland. And so there were, in my dad's, our family business, we're filling, loading up vans full of TVs and washing machines and fridge freezers for customers in Scotland, Monday to Friday or Saturday. And at the weekend, the van drivers were going across on the ferry to Gdansk and providing food and medical aid that were stored in our family businesses' storerooms um, to Poland. So he was trying to help. And he was a totally practical guy. He said, understand the politics, he says, but there are people who are dying because they don't have you know, vaccinations, like now, you know, let's get them the vaccinations and we can talk about politics after. So by this time, Dad was born in 1922, so about 60. And our family business was growing. This time it had 15, 16 shops. Um, and Dad had, and Mum had 10 children, so I'm one of 10. And about three or four had joined the business, so it was becoming a family business. And that changes everything. When you're running it yourself, you're like a, it's very interesting. Entrepreneurs are the closest thing to emperors that, that still exist in any democracy, democratic country, because you've got absolute power. It's your business; you can do whatever you want. But when you start having children, you start thinking, "Oh, I need to protect them." And what happens after I retire? And when should I retire? And what if I think that the best person to join the family business actually isn't working in the business just now. Should I try and encourage them? But if I try and encourage them, does that make the other ones think I'm favouring them? And so on and so on. All these emotional complications. So Dad decided that he would retire early and pass it on to my, my eldest brother, John, which is the classic um, traditional method. It was both ageist and sexist, you know, eldest son inherits. Um, so, Johnny, my brother, ran it very successfully for a long time. And um, But the problem was that Dad, by this time, Mum and Dad had a house in Florida as well as here. And he would spend three months in Florida, three months here, three months in Florida, three months here. Basically, home for Christmas in the winter and home for Scottish summer, such as it is, and be in Florida at spring and autumn. But, of course, that meant Dad was out of touch. This is before computers, this is before some mobile phones. Dad was out of touch with what was happening in the business. He said he'd retired from it. But every time he came back, he would get into his own old habit of going straight to the business at six in the morning, checking out the bank statements, how things were, talking to the staff. And sometimes he would say, nah, I don't think you should be doing it that way, you should be doing it this way. And because they had known him all their life as the boss, 
they would just start doing it another way, not knowing that my brothers and sisters and my eldest brother John had talked over this for ages and decided the change was the better way. And so all sorts of confusion and stuff came in there. So essentially, about six or seven years later, by which time I joined the family business after my best trying not to, which we'll maybe do in, another, in the other um, section. But um, we had to tell my dad to stop coming into the business that he created. Um, and that was incredibly painful and potentially dangerous. You know, I mean, dad had the character to say, all right, you think you can do without me? Bloody out of you. Out, every single one of you. You're all sacked. I'm taking over again. You know, but fortunately, it didn't because my mum was wise and my mum said he was an old fool. He shouldn't have gone back into the business at all. He was interfering where he shouldn't be. Um, and dad said, yeah, hands up. I got it wrong. And so that went well. And he took that very graciously. You consider, you know, this is from a person who built this up from nothing having been at the worst situation I've ever known a person to be in. Um, so I then took on board. Dad retired. Um, and as a family, we all started studying this new thing called family business theory, which went into all the dynamics of working in a family business and all the real traps that are in there for the families involved and the emotional challenges that it brings. And to cut a long story short, um, in 2005, I decided that I would create Scottish Family Business Association to help other families who are in business together with each other to not go through the complexities we went through and the challenges we went through because our business failed in 2002. Um, and part of it was about family clashing over direction. So there wasn't the, the united vision of where the business was. So that, I think, takes us up to the start of the Family Business Association and its purpose. It's, it's an amazing story. It's an immense story of success um, from someone who, at one point, had been able to hold, uh, put his hand around his thigh and touch his fingers um, you know, at the age of 20. So a staggering um, result from my father, and uh, he died in 2012, three weeks before my mum. And so it was a really painful, difficult time for us all, but he was 90 years old, and his two sisters survived him as well, and they lived, they died aged 91 and 92 uh, a few years ago. Um, and they all were, you know, a hairbreadth away from death when they were teenagers. So it just shows you how resilient human beings can be and I think also how you can overcome anything if fortune favours you, if you also have the attitude. Fantastic story, Martin. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Your father, who had been through so much adversity, determined that his family would never have to suffer what he did. He planned for every threat, every eventuality, only to see the business collapse because of family dynamics. So now you founded the Scottish Family Business Association to advise family businesses on the dangers of unprepared success. Now we'll talk about the Scottish Family Business Association in part two of this podcast, along with all your other business ventures and accomplishments. And we'll also ask you the crucial question, 
What's the secret of business? But for now, Martin, you can walk. Thank you. I'll walk. Join us at our next event and engage with the business community. 